electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the road ahead for stocks. One of the most dovish members of the Fed delivering a most hawkish warning for investors. We discussed that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Jim Laventhal, Josh Brown, John Najarian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Of course, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is with us to react to Lyle Brainerd as well. Let's check the markets. I want to show you yields. That is where the story lies today, at least in part, because you did have a big jump in yields following the Brainerd comments. What you see on your screen doesn't reflect really the move in and of itself, 5%, 6% or so in many of the the parts of the the curve, uh, as you see there. Take a look at stocks. I mean, they're reacting a little bit. Certainly the Nasdaq down one and three quarters percent. Not all that much. Not all that much, though. Jim Labenthal, I got a call from some of the smartest money I know who said you got to pay attention when the head of the dovish wing of the Federal Reserve says what she did today. Rapid QT is coming. That's what Lyle Brainerd said. You are my resident bull. What do you think today? Um, I'm still bullish, Scott. Let me start there. I think that the immediate future is going to continue this chop around the 4,600 level on the S&P 500. And it's specifically because of this tug of war between how fast is the, is the Fed going to tighten? Uh, when are they going to start the quantitative tightening aspect of it? May. Can that be offset by share buybacks? I'm sorry, Scott. What? In May. They're starting it in May. Okay. Um, The point that I'm trying to drive at here is that on a day like today, we're focused on the negatives. There are positives out there as well with some questions on them. The earnings trajectory is still positive. I expect you to chime in here and say that they're going to go down. Well, let's see. We've got a few weeks coming up of earnings season and let's see what happens with earnings. Whether the top line is expanding enough and margins are hanging in enough that earnings will continue to grow, which is the projection and which continues to be increased upon, or whether the slowdown is going to swamp whatever happens happens with the top line. But that's a question yet to be answered. Another question yet to be answered in the short term is where exactly is inflation going? Because we know about Russia, Ukraine. We don't know what was happening underneath that. It looked, frankly, like inflation was starting to ease. We need a few more months for all of these things to settle out. Where I end up on this, Scott, is still bullish with the 5,030 year-end target. I think about my colleague Josh Brown who said last week, yes, but what about the map? What about the terrain you get through to get there? And it's going to be choppy in the short term, but I feel bullish to the end of the year. I feel quite confident in it, in fact. Okay. So one point I want to make on your bullish comment regarding buybacks. Bank of America is out with their flow note today, and they say, and I quote, while buybacks typically slow at the end of each quarter ahead of earnings season, buybacks by corporate clients slowed to their lowest weekly level in a year. 
and on a rolling four-week average basis are down year-on-year for the first time since late 2020. Let me bring in in Leisman. Because, Leisman, this wasn't just hawkish (laughs) comments from any Fed person. This was Fed Governor Brainerd. She's one of the most liberal and dovish members of the Fed. And the point that this person was making to me on the phone is I don't understand what in the world's going on with the market. You'd see what's happening in yields. How in the world are stocks hanging in the the way they are? Scott, I've had a question for a long time, which is, is the market fully pricing in what the Fed's going to do with the balance sheet or are they ignoring it? I think we got a little bit of an answer today that the market had not fully priced it in. Um, I actually register, Scott, if you look at the Dow trade, I was just calculating the other stuff, about a 260-point swing. Uh, from we, we were right at the highs of the day there, um, you know, up above uh, 5,000, 35,000. Um, and now we're, you know, 3480, 3420, whatever it is, um, 34820. Uh, and, and so the market definitely came off. Uh, and, and a couple things about Brainerd. Um, she has made this move certainly towards the center, uh, away from being in the dumb spring over a period of time here. But th- you are right. This is the most hawkish I believe she's been, in part because it's well to remember, and, and this is maybe a little bit inside baseball for you, Brainerd's in a new spot now. She is the nominee to be vice chair of the Federal Reserve. As such, she's going to be the, um, the policy pulling guard for the chair here. So whereas the chair said, uh, I guess at the last press conference, yeah, we're probably going to do this in May. She said we're going to do it in May. Whereas the chair didn't provide a whole lot of context around how rapid it would be, she says it's going to be pretty rapid. Uh, not only did she use the word rapidly reducing the balance sheet, but she talked about this con- two other concepts. Large caps. What's a cap? The Fed's going to have a certain amount rolling off each month. And where it sets that cap is how much it will allow to roll off before going back into the market and saying, I want to replace this amount. Large caps means a large amount of roll-off, 80, 90, maybe $100 billion a month of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. She also said we're going to rapidly scale up to that cap. That gave us two pieces of information. The first was we weren't 100% sure they were going to scale up to it. Now we know they are going to scale up to it. And the second thing is they're going to get there relatively quickly. So this is more what do you want to call it, paper coming online for the market than previously. And um, this is not, by the way, a one-sided equation. Now that you know that the Fed is going to be doing a lot more of roll-off, now we have to understand how the Treasury is going to refinance this. And that's another question for the market. Clearly, they believe all of this engenders higher interest rates. And, you know, the market is reacting to that. I mean, it tells me that people like Harker, who came on this network and, and weren't ready to commit to 50, 50 basis points in, in, in the next meeting are so becoming the outliers on the Fed. And it, the, the Brainerd comments today to me are, are, are so important. Diamond warns it, right, yesterday. Brainerd says it today. And now Josh Brown, the investor, says what? I would say Lael Brainerd's on a mission from God to rescue Joe Biden's uh, midterms. It's going to be very, very difficult for the Democrats to put up any sort of a showing behind a president whom most of the country will look at and blame. Whether it's his fault or not is another debate. They will blame him if we're still talking about inflation at 40-year highs. People are innumerate. 
for the most part. They don't read past headlines, and they don't like the way their lives are going right now. So you can look at wage growth, which at the low end of the income scale is fantastic. Unfortunately, it's not keeping pace with the growth in, let's say, what it costs to uh, fill up an automobile. And this is what's really important to the public. So we already know uh, that the Fed overstayed its welcome. They gave a little bit too much of a very good medicine that went from being a help to a hindrance. And now uh, this, this degree of playing catch up, we know what the Fed normally does. They tighten and tighten and tighten until something breaks. What's going to break? I don't know. Watch credit spreads. Watch what banks are saying. Watch CNI loans. There's, there's a million different ways for you to think about where we're going to see the damage show up first. But we do not get out of a bout with inflation like this without some sort of a recession. Doesn't have to be imminent, but that's probably where things are headed. And they feel that they have no choice now politically because of how bad the headline risk and the resulting political fallout is. Uh, and that's just where we are. So that's the negative. Uh, by the way, the, the answer to the riddle on, on the buybacks, the, the, the borrowing costs have gone up extreme, extremely high relative to where they were. So, of course, people are hesitant to keep pulling the trigger. Uh, and actually, new announced buybacks in the first quarter at a five-year low as well. So That's fine. Now, I know. I know. Jim's the one, Jim the is suggesting that, that you can hang your hat on, on buybacks because they're going to continue to come. Well, here's what I, I hear a story <clears> being painted here. Um, Steph, and I see it through the moves that you guys are making, and that's really where I want to put the rubber to the road here. Um, Peak freight, we've been discussing that all week. Jim Labenthal, he sells UNP, Union Pacific. Peak semis, wondered about that. They they don't look great. Steph sells NXPI. Think about that. Peak autos, that's one of the areas we've been talking about, too. Josh sells GM. I want to go through each one of those. I want to go through each one of those because I see very distinct stories in all of those. Josh Brown, why would you sell GM? I'm really just making room uh, in my portfolio. I think the bear market rally is now rolling over, and I want to make sure I'm not sitting on dead money when there might be opportunity. So I don't have any issues specifically with GM. I may end up getting back into it. It's not a macro call. I'm not a macro guy. I just look at the chart and the stock's going nowhere. It doesn't rally on good news, on bad news. It falls and it tends to be very sensitive to the overall market. So uh, I think there are going to be better places to be as, uh, as the bear market uh, rally deteriorates. And I want to make sure I'm ready. Stephanie Link, why did you sell NXPI? Well, I've been balancing out my portfolio all year long. We've talked about how I thought that this market was going to be very choppy in a trading range because of all the things you guys were just talking about, war, inflation, and the Fed. And we're not going to get answers on any of that. We have no idea how the Fed is going to get out of this at all. And and now, as you mentioned, Brainer is being completely hawkish. Um, I do not think we are headed for a recession this year. We are headed for slower growth this year. I'm not even entirely sure we'll see a recession first half of next year. Maybe 2023 if the Fed really messes things up. up. Um, But we have to wait and see. 
The one positive I want to call out, and I'll get to NXPI in a second, the one positive I want to call out about the economy, services, okay? We have actually, services is 70% of the U.S. GDP, right? And the services side of the economy is humming. That's pent-up demand. That's reopen. We've talked about reopen for quarters upon quarters now, and that's where I want to absolutely be overweighted in, and I am. We had the ISM services number this morning. What That was better than expected. New orders rose four points. Last week, we had ADP, the payrolls on the travel and leisure services side, 377,000 payrolls were created. The non-farm payroll jobs uh, last on Friday, the private services uh, piece came in at 366,000. This is very important. It's not all gloom and doom. Maybe we're going to transition from uh, from goods uh, that were actually the standout to services, and that would be better for the economy. So I do not think we're going to head into a recession. That being said, all of these uncertainties, I want to have a better balance of my portfolio. You know, last year, I was much more on the cyclical side of things and on the reopen, too. I'm still on the reopen, less on the cyclical. I have been adding to some technology names, so like Fortinet and like Meta, because they're both down quite a bit, and I like the valuations in the stories. NXPI is up 183% from the March 2020 lows, and I didn't catch the bottom, of course, but I made good money, and I think it's prudent to actually take some profits in this name because they have very tough comparisons going forward, and number two, supplies are growing. Supplies are going, analog supply is going to grow 23% from 2020 to 2023 on a compound annual growth rate Mm -hmm. basis. Revenues are only going to grow mid single digits. Mm. That's a challenge for NXPI. It's a great company, great businesses. I've made my money. I'm moving on. Dr. J, what's the options paper telling you? Where where are people placing their bets? And then I'm going to get to Farmer Jim on his sale. But Doc, I want to hear from you. Okay. Well, Scott, um, right now, there have been a lot of big bets today because of Lael Brainerd's comments in the TLT in particular. Um, And they bought the 127 puts that expire this Friday, Scott. To give the viewers an example, you know, it it was trading at about 129.20. The TLT was that ETF that tracks the 20 year. Um, That implies a move of close to 265 for the 10 year by Friday. Um, You know we're all about velocity, volume, and volatility. That's all three of them, if that plays out, Scott. So I actually disagree with my fellow panelist, Josh Brown. Saving Joe Biden in the midterms, Josh, by pushing rates up this fast, they're not going to be able to pull back the price of gasoline um, and the pain people feel at the pump with this. But they will start hurting people really bad with credit cards, with credit cards, and with mortgages, Josh, and the demand destruction there will be dramatic. Look at the uh, the car companies that you sold today and so forth. These guys will be struggling mightily if rates push up like this, because obviously the people with the, the lowest credit scores are the ones most affected by those higher interest rates. So I, I actually take the other side of the trade from you there, Josh. This is not something that helps Joe Biden. This is something that crushes him in the midterm. Here's what I John, know. I didn't here, say it was. Here, here. John, I didn't say I didn't say it was. I agree with you. It, the problem is the problem is for an investor, you have to ask yourself which is the worst of two evils because those are the two choices we're left with right now. And and in in one situation, you can have the Fed say, okay, this will work itself out, and we'll go slow. And maybe that's better in the first half, but much worse in the second half. On the other hand, you could have a Fed that says, we have to do what we have to do. There might be a reset in financial markets, um, but 
in the end, this will be better for the real economy. I don't know which side they're, they're leaning toward, but neither is great from an investing perspective right now. Can, can we also be, be clear about something? Because, look, Deutsche Bank is out today projecting a recession. They're not projecting it tomorrow. And I feel like we need like a like a big flashing thing that comes on the screen when we start talking about the possibility of recession. Nobody I know or have heard is projecting a recession this year. So let's just take that off the table. Deutsche Bank is projecting a recession within the next two years. An inverted yield curve has led to a recession, but it doesn't happen tomorrow or the next week or the next month. It can take a year, 18 months. No. You make, you make my point. I, yes. I, that, that's my point. Jim Labenthal, Leesman, I'm coming back to you. Bear with me. If things are so good, like you say they are every day, why are you trimming UNP? Are we at peak freight? Is that a, what is that? No, <clears throat> no, we're not at peak freight. Um, I love you, Scott. You're, you're consistent, hilarious, and incorrigible in how you frame things. Yes, I trimmed Union Pacific, but you neglected to say that I added to Home Depot. And both of those are stocks that are tied to the economic cycle. So I'm clearly not getting out from the economic cycle. I'm not in the recession camp. I think at worst you're going to have a mid-cycle slowdown. And frankly, you know, I'm listening to my, my, my friend Josh, and I'm, I'm hearing him very concerned about the Fed. But I'm thinking to myself, just a few months ago, Josh was telling us that inflation was set to roll over. And we're actually getting indications of that, but now we're focused on the Fed as hell-bent for leather. Did something happen? This market moves back and forth. Did something happen? What? Did something something happen in in, in the world in the month of February? um, Josh, do you think think commodities are going to continue to spike? What's over? Oh, come on. Stop. Oh, stop it, Josh. This is crazy. Don't bring up genocide. We're talking about stocks and we're talking about the economy right now, okay? Let's talk about commodity prices. They have spiked. That doesn't mean next month they're going to spike again. Let's leave the moral overtones aside. We're talking about stocks in the economy. Don't lecture me, sir. Don't lecture me, sir. Commodity prices are affecting the economy, affecting the stocks that you and I both own. And with all due respect, nothing is over. I would love for it to be over. It is not over. And in fact, in some ways, actually, things are getting worse. I find it amusing for you to tell anyone to stop lecturing. But moving on from that, nothing's uh, all amusing we are in is this. a mid-cycle nothing's slowdown amusing. here. So, Steve Leesman, let, let, let me you turn are, back to you. You are, my friend. Let me, let me, let me turn back to you, uh, Mr. Leesman. You know... I keep hearing from people as well, not necessarily, maybe some on this program, not necessarily today, but on the committee and elsewhere, you know, conversations in overtime the last couple of days with people who still say we're going to have a, a dovish pivot from the Fed. So, I mean, what do you make of talk like that, Steve? Does that seem anywhere in the realm of possibility? I, I think- and this notion that, you know, Jim used the words, if the Fed messes things up. Or Steph maybe use if the Fed messes things up. I mean, whereas the Fed used to get the benefit of the doubt, I honestly don't know if they deserve it anymore. I feel like the benefit of the doubt is now that they're, they're going to mess it up. And prove to me otherwise. Hmm. Prove to me otherwise. Brainerd just told you how uh-huh. aggressive they're going to be. Prove to me that you yeah. can do what you say and not mess it up. Well, if I could just, as an aside, Scott, say that, um, you know, Labenthal Brown doesn't have quite the ring as Leesman Santelli, but there is definitely scope there. 
for the argument to uh, to continue. You set um, the precedent. So we can get back to that. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, we did. We, did. We, we, we took we took we took decorum to a new low. Yeah. But that said, um, <laughs> let, let me let me just say, uh, uh, first of all, I got to give a, a, a shout out to Stephanie because she's uh, backing up my work here which points out that average hourly wages, they're rising below inflation. But the total amount of wages, because we've employed 1.7 million people this year, the total amount of wages paid to workers is actually up above inflation. So there's money out there. And our look at the high frequency data, Steph, doesn't show, for example, that there's a huge decline as a result of the spike in oil prices. So I'll put that aside. That's part of it. I will tell you, Scott, that if you remember my reporting last week, and I believe I was on this show saying it, the Fed doesn't have a That's whole lot right. of faith that necessarily it's not going to have a recession. And, and that gets to the, where we began here. The Fed is uncertain about how all of this balance sheet stuff works. It's a very good argument to, to, to uh, bring up uh, my, my colleague, Rick, not getting in because we're not really quite sure how we get out. There is an argument out there, Scott, that the first trillion and trillion and a half amount of, of QE or QT can come off relatively painlessly, that that is not money that's necessarily needed in the system. So they can maybe get that right. The argument you would make, which I don't know that I subscribe to, is that what you're doing, you're getting rates up to a neutral level, 2% or so by the end of this year, and then you're letting the first part of the balance sheet roll off that has this kind of perhaps painless aspect to it that is not really going to be binding on rates. And what they mean by that is that is not something that by itself will raise rates. But we don't know. And so it's a matter of them. They they were going to go slowly. Now they're saying they're going to go more rapidly. And that's something for the market to digest, something for the economy to digest. You're seeing it with what Josh was talking about, which was a kind of cooling off of of rates uh, or sort of buybacks and other things. And it's going to hit the economy. And the question is, is the other numbers I talked about, the huge employment numbers that are out there, is that enough to cushion the economy from the blow of higher rates? And we don't know. And I I want to know from investors like Stephanie Link, what Steve said before he finished. It's going to affect the economy. Undeniably. Well, it is. Undeniable. Well, it absolutely is. But I do want to it is going to slow the economy. There's, that's, there's no question about that. That's the reason why the Fed is doing it. A it lot. will, depending on, depending on what they do. Depending on what they do, right? So I was Where's surprised the about the balance sheet. I want to ask. Where's the doubt? I don't understand. I don't, like, well, why are we debating what they're going to do? They're telling you what they're going to do. Because we don't know. They're not telling you exactly what they're going to do. They're telling you that they're going to run off the balance sheet, maybe starting in May. In Quickly. May. We don't know by how much. We do not know by how much. We also do not know, are they going 50 at the next meeting and then 50 again? And then are they going to stop and pause and be data dependent like I'm really hoping they will be? The bigger question I have for Steve is, do you think if they run off the balance sheet faster than expected, does that actually steepen the yield curve, Steve? Didn't in it 2018. It, 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 it depends on how Treasury responds. We don't really know exactly there's been some interesting developments on the Treasury side where they've sort of overfunded for a little while. So we're kind of cushioned for a few months here, depending upon how Treasury responds. The Fed is not, I believe, going to try to play games with the yield curve itself. It should be it bought across the spectrum. It should be selling across the spectrum. 
um, with with the, the roll off. It's not really dependent upon. It's just it's just the luck of the draw. How these things are going to roll off. It's not going to be playing to try to to try to steepen the yield curve, but it could. I think that's an interesting idea. The quicker we get this behind us, the more quickly we can start to think about growing again from the impact of higher rates. Steph, you you have another defensive play. You bought more McDonald's, which you concede is a, a defensive yeah. move. You've added to Meta, which I could make the case is defensive as well, because it's the Fang stocks that have been going up. Um, you know, making it somewhat of a top-heavy rally as money goes into a perceived defensive part of, of technology. That, again, that, that's the trimming an XPI, buying more McDonald's, buying more Meta. That sounds like more defensive to me. It's a little bit more defensive. I'm, I'm doing the barbell, which is what I've been talking about for years now, right? I mean, and I can skew one way or the other, a little more value, a little more cyclical, or a little bit more growth and a little more defensive growth. This is definitely a defensive market. I mean, look just underneath the surface and look at the rotations that are happening, right? I mean, this is the first day that value is actually outperforming growth in three weeks. I mean, it's been, it's been amazing to watch the, the, the rally in growth. And so when the growth happens, when the growth rally happens, I don't want to be left out. But I also found in the, in the declines, in ter- especially in technology in January and February and March, um, some of the stocks got really attractive. So, okay, Facebook is defensive for sure, but it's also trading at 10 times EBITDA, trading at 17 times earnings. They've got a real franchise. Yes, it's in a little disarray right now, or maybe it's a lot disarray, but they will figure out reels. They will monetize it. They'll get it right. They've got a $50 billion buyback. I'm sure they're in the market as well. Um, in terms of Fortinet, that's more offensive, but I don't think cybersecurity is going anywhere anytime soon. And I, I like a catalyst call here because on May 10th, they have an analyst day, and I think they're going to up their, their margins profile. They've been doing a really good job in terms of products. McDonald's, absolutely no question about it, is defensive, but they're also delivering. Remember last quarter? They had a two-year stack comp in the U.S. at 13.9%, and international 8.2%. They're doing just fine. Digital drive-through deliveries helping them. They've got a strong balance sheet. Yes, they have inflation problems as well and wage problems as well, but I think they're going to be able to overcome that. And I think if we do see a slowing in the economy, you're going to see trade down to something like a McDonald's. So I like it. I mean, Doc, um, I have a problem just getting past the, you know, how incredulous this person was as they, you know, that I was speaking with as they were watching the market and just thinking of the overall Mm -hmm. picture. You play Diamond, Brainerd, you think of what everybody is trying to, including the Fed chair himself, is trying to sort of set the table with and wondering whether investors are protecting themselves enough. And I think that's where this conversation morphs to. If you believe the storm clouds are rolling in and you're going to get a heavy thunderstorm and some lightning is going to you know, blow through and maybe something comes behind it, maybe not. Maybe that's just all it's going to be. Are we protecting ourselves enough in that well, environment? And if not, how would you? Well, as you know, I'd, I'd always do some protective strategies with S&P puts or VIX calls, Scott. But for those not able to basically get into either of those strategies, I'd say um, a lot of this, most of us watching the markets day by day, minute by minute, um, have been seeing coming our way. I think it was why the NASDAQ had such a severe drop Um, during the month of March, tail end of February and so forth, um, was exactly because of those storm clouds that you cite on the horizon. Um, Now, the market is a forward-looking mechanism. People are basically voting with their money what is going to happen next. 
And what they've been doing um, was lightening up on many of those stocks, just hunkering down in the strongest, like Apple, like Microsoft, um, and some of the ones that they believe will be able to withstand it. Um, and the rest of them, they just kind of step back a little bit and let the market come to them, Scott. It's still the best place on the planet to be is this market okay. rather than any other market. That's a great point you make. And frankly, it's one of the points of conversation that we had, me and this person. Where's all this money coming from? Is it retail? Is it overseas? Is it flooding out of Europe and coming into the U.S.? Yes. Because this is still the place to be. And for many people, cash is not an alternative. So to some, there still is Tina. There is no alternative other Scott. than U.S. stocks. Let's do this. I'm going to take a quick Scott. break. I'm going to let you make your point after this break. Leesman, you just stay with us, too. Why not? We'll just figure something out. Twitter shares are coming off the best day since the IPO. Still rallying Elon Musk. He's now joining the board of directors. That is after becoming Twitter's biggest individual shareholder. We'll discuss that a lot more. John has unusual activity. And who knows what else we have coming up in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Where is the security that the Security Council needs to guarantee? Those are the words of Ukrainian President Zelensky in a video address to the United Nations body, primarily responsible for maintaining international peace. He listed alleged atrocities by Russian troops and called for the country to be stripped of its veto power as a permanent member of that council. Today, as a result of Russia's actions in our country, uh, in Ukraine, the most terrible war crimes of all times are we see uh, since the end of World War II, and they are being committed. Russian troops are deliberately destroying Ukrainian cities uh, to ashes by with artillery and airstrikes. 
And a fourth Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump is now retiring from Congress. After serving 18 terms, Michigan Representative Fred Upton told his fellow lawmakers this morning he will not run for reelection, saying even the best stories have a last chapter. And in Augusta, Tiger Woods told reporters this morning that as of right now, he feels like he is going to play in the Masters this week and he thinks he can win it. It would be his first tour appearance since he was badly injured in a car crash just over a year ago. Scott, hard to not root for Tiger. That would just be crazy. I know exactly where I'll be, too. On the couch. (laughs) With the TV on. Frank, thank you. Thank you. That's Frank Holland. All right, Josh, what were you going to say? Oh, I forgot. Um, I I think the the big picture, though, (laughs) just to, like, finish. Do it quickly. Do it quickly, then, because I got something else I want to get you on that's more important, frankly. All right. I, I, what, I want, what I wanted to say is the major thing that keeps you from getting too bearish, despite thinking that the correction or the bear market's not over, is that the answer for most investors to the inflation puzzle, regardless of economic I- issues, is stocks. Um, this idea that I don't like inflation, I'm going to wait till it's over and sit in cash, you, you might not understand how inflation works. So stocks ultimately will win out. But we all have to acknowledge the next three to six months in front of us have more challenges, really, since anything other than the coronavirus. I don't know. Doesn't sound like Jim Labenthal wants to acknowledge that. And that's his prerogative. The good thing is is that time is going to tell and we're going to figure out exactly what happens. Now, you can't be that negative, Josh Brown, if you doubled your. (laughs) Hello. Who was that? Yeah. That's me. I'm not that negative. uh, Let me finish. If you doubled your position in RH, you doubled your position in RH this morning. Yeah. All right. Here's the deal. This is not another one, not a macro call. Uh, This stock is down 55% from its high. This is a company that had been growing earnings at a a massively uh, rapid rate, uh, growing revenue as well. It's come down substantially because of inflation uh, and all the issues in the housing market, higher mortgage rates, et cetera. Um, I think it's just gotten to the point where it's come down too much. There was an overhang with this name. Um, The CEO had IPO-related shares that he was going to have to exercise and be able to sell. That overhang has just been removed. There's a note out on the street this morning talking about how now the $2 billion buyback that had already been authorized is free and clear to begin. And I would imagine it would start relatively soon, given how much the stock has come down over the last year. So now you have a company selling 14 and a half times earnings, 13 times forward <coughs> earnings expectations. Even if those expectations prove to be too high and they've already come down a bit, I still think the stock is too cheap. This is one of Berkshire Hathaway's favorite stocks. They've been buying it. It's only a $7 billion market cap. And I think because they cater to the ultra-luxury, high-end segment of the market, regardless of the overall economy, this company should do just fine. So I like it here. Added to my position. It's a little bit of an average up, but I think it's going to work. Okay. Stocks at the high of the day. Steve Leisman, I'm going to give you the last comment. And maybe it should be on the fact that kind of where we started and we, we, we wrap it all up. The resiliency of the market, right? Here we are. We put into context who Brainerd is. And the magnitude of the words in which she spoke. And here we are. Yes, I I get it. The Nasdaq's getting hit pretty bad. But the S&P's down less than 1%. Dow is down a third of 1%. 
And I really got to believe, and you know, would know better than anybody else, that Brainerd says what she does today, leans over and J-Pal, like, see, the market really is ready for this. We can do what we need to do because they're getting the message and it's OK. It's prepared. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that they would look at this as um, a pretty good acceptance of it. You know, you had a, a swing in the market and, and, and honestly, the market and the Fed are looking to come, you know, for that equilibrium rate. But, but if I could, I know Josh is not making macro calls, but he is making them right because company earnings and dividends keep pace with inflation in a way that cash does not cash goes down so it's an interesting call and i'm fascinated scott by your discussion with the the unnamed person about where the cash is coming from the idea that there is considerable uh uh cash on the sidelines to come into a market like this uh i think changes the calculus and we're just going to have to see brace yourselves tomorrow we'll get i think what 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 brainerd might have been doing was front-running what's going to be in the minutes tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We're going to want to pay close attention to that because maybe they'll put some numbers on what these large caps are going to look like, how much they're going to let roll off every month, how quickly they're going to get there. My guess is we're going to get that data tomorrow, and so I'll be able to talk about what it means for how, and, and the fixed income market can start to price that in. And then the equity market can price in what the fixed income market price. It's in. funny. I heard some suggestions, too, that like Diamond was front-running Brainerd, who was front-running uh, the minutes. So we'll, we'll see. Steve, as always, I appreciate it, man. We'll we'll, uh, we'll see you back, and I'm sure we will tomorrow. That's Steve Leisman. Hey, Twitter's rallying for a second day. Elon Musk, he's now joining the board. We're going to debate it. We're going to trade it. We're going to do it next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Twitter shares rising again on news that Elon Musk will now join the board of directors. Something our own Josh Brown said yesterday would make a lot of sense. I think he should have board seats immediately. I know it's a passive stake. I know he's not uh, uh, outright calling for any particular change. I definitely think management should be engaging with him. Maybe they already have. And who else should, should have input into strategic direction and management of this company? Okay, Mr. Prognosticator. That was you yesterday. What about today? Yeah. I think this was the only move they could have made. You know, he, he could not have mounted a, uh, an activist campaign for board seats himself, just given the timing. The annual meeting is in May, and I think you need a little bit more time to plan uh, uh, for something like that. So if they hadn't done this, um, then they would have just basically had their largest and most vocal shareholder um, calling them out by name on their own app. Uh, any time that they chose to brush him off or not pay attention. 
So I think the funniest two things that happened here, the first is that they filed it as a G, LOL. I don't think this is a guy who's known to do anything passively. Um, and he was already asking for feedback from other people using Twitter how to change the service prior to the filing. So it was never going to be a G. It was always either going to be this, where they limit him to 14.9% stake, uh, or a full-on D, which would not have been fun for anybody uh, else who sits in the executive suite or on the board. So this made a lot of sense, and hopefully they do something to constructively improve the monetization of the platform and maybe even kickstart user growth again. Okay, Stephanie Link, you used to own it, and you're looking at it again? Yep. Uh, well, I think this is fascinating. I think it would be silly not to look at it, um, especially given that it trades at eight times price to sales. And I know this is not really a price to sales kind of market at the moment, but it's way less than Snap, which is at 14 times price to sales. So they built an alternative news platform and they have not been able to execute. That actually has been the thing that's been so frustrating. So every time I bought Twitter, I, it was like a tactical kind of a trade, a tactical position. Um, so because I think that that he can help on the execution front, on the monetization front, um, and, uh, and also control the content and figure out what they're going to do with con- content, just to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wait and see. It's up a lot in two days. Sure is. But I do, I think this is very, very interesting. Yeah. Doc, but I'm you- not chasing it here. But I think if, you know, if, it, if it gets sold off at some point, given the macro um, environment and the markets, I, I would probably take a look. Doc, you, you bought calls yesterday, right? After this news. Um, I- well, I rolled up, Scott. Uh, Pete was live on the show with you the 25th of March, um, doing it for unusual activity, rig and Twitter both. Um, and we bought the 44 calls. Those calls went $7 in the money yesterday. They traded up north of $9, I think. So it was nearly an 800% winner. Um, took that off, rolled up to the June four, uh, 50s, Scott. I think the stock hits 75.80 by year end. And I certainly applaud Twitter and Mr. Musk for basically opening this thing back up, hopefully for more freer speech on the platform. All right. All right. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, John's Unusual Activity. We're back, April, Financial Literacy Month, and a new CNBC and Acorn survey conducted by Moment Live finds while parents say they should be the ones teaching personal finance, many aren't taking the time to talk with their children about money. Senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson joins us now. We need to change that, I guess. We definitely do, Scott. It's changing in some places. Florida just became the largest state in the nation to mandate personal finance education in high school. It's now one of 11 states to require students to take a financial literacy course in order to graduate. And there are over 50 personal finance education bills pending in other states. Yet, according to our CNBC survey, most parents think financial education should start at home. 83% say parents are most responsible for teaching children about personal finances. Out of the more than 1,100 parents in this survey, only 14% say they think teachers are most responsible for personal finance education. The reality is that many students are not learning about personal finance from their parents because families aren't discussing it. Almost one-third of parents in the survey admit they never talk to their children about household finances. Now, 44% said they talk about it at least once a month. 
Some parents may be worried they don't have a good grasp of their own finances, but that's not the belief of the majority of the adults in our broad survey. About three-quarters of the nearly 4,000 respondents rate their financial understanding as good or excellent. Now, not all of those adults are parents, but still they're giving themselves pretty high marks when it comes to their own financial literacy. Just need to pass it down to the kids. Yeah, exactly. It's not that hard. Let's do this. Sharon, thank you. That's Sharon Epperson. All right. For more survey results, go to CNBC.com slash invest in you. Plus, be sure to tune in tomorrow, April 6th, 1 p.m. Eastern. It's a virtual event with Sharon. She'll be moderating a roundtable discussion with three of the nation's governors about the importance of financial education. You can register. Go to CNBC.com slash states. And one last thing we should note that NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Up next, unusual activity with the doctor. We're back right after this. It is time for unusual activity. Doc, tell us what you see today. All right, Scott, um, I've got a big cap ETF, the Vanguard European Index. And from what they're saying right now, everything from potentially banning coal from Russia to obviously potentially banning oil and nat gas, um, that's really going to put a lot of pressure on those economies, big cap stocks in particular. We see a lot of buying at the 57 strike for June puts, and that's with the index north of 63. So in other words, they're seeing the index fall rather dramatically over the next two months, Scott. Second one um, is uh, TAN. This is a solar uh, ETF. All three of these picks, I'm going to give you three today, Scott. All three are really energy related. TAN, solar, uh, they're buying the May 85 calls. So basically just two expirations out. 78.50 was where the stock was. They're buying the 85 calls. So they see pretty considerable upside from here to um, May expiration. Lastly, Synovus Energy, CVE. Uh, this is a Canadian oil and gas play. Uh, the stock 1750, they're buying the June 18 calls, Scott. I've bought all three of these, two of the calls and one of the puts, and I probably will hold them at least several weeks. I really love the sector, as you know. I think energy just goes boop, 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 higher. Okay, Doc, thank you. We'll take a break. We'll do final trades next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Real debate and actionable advice from the Investment Committee, plus unusual activity and more. Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Don't miss overtime today, 4 o'clock Eastern. That man right there, Leon Cooperman, the Omega Family Office Chairman and CEO, joins me. We'll talk about the markets, obviously, where he sees things going from here. Right now, we do final trades. The Linkster starts us off. Yeah, Walgreens, the stock is down 11% year-to-date, eight-and-a-half times earnings. I like what this new management is doing in terms of investing. I buy it on weakness. Okay, thank you. Mr. All-In. CVS, regardless of what you think of my take on the markets, I do believe this is an all-weather stock. If you get a punk market, you're still going to need health care. They're still going to have cash flows to pay down their debt on their balance sheet. And if things go well, the same thing's going to happen. This is a good stock to own. Okay. Dr. J. Um, AbbVie, Scott, uh, they were aggressively buying the 170 calls in May. I bought the 165s because that's the at the money. I hope to sell higher strikes as it rallies. Been a popular stock for the investment committee. Bryn Talkington had it as her yep. final trade yesterday. Josh Brown. Bang. 
Uh, ITA it is a new secular growth market for defense and aerospace spending. This is a broad-based ETF that allows you to be invested there. All right. Good stuff, everybody. Let's take a last look at the market, too, uh, because it is quite an interesting day with those comments from Lyle Brainerd. Uh, Nasdaq's down a lot, you know, a little less than 2%. S&P and Dow hanging in there. That does it for us. I will see you in overtime. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.